Chapter 3 George Sharp worked in the service department of the Northeastern Electricity Board, and he spent most days tripping down cookers from council estates. It required some skill, but it was monotonous, uninspiring work. Despite radio and TV discussions by experts on job enrichment, nobody had ever found a way of relieving the monotony of this kind of job. Not that George Sharp would have welcomed experiments, for George was a man who lived two lives. Most nights, George sat in the attic of his sister's house at Morpeth, just north of Newcastle. And there George was the boss of G4XNE, and he chatted on shortwave with fellow hams all over the world. On the night of the 24th of July, George had spent the early evening tuning his aerial and bringing his log up to date. He joined a network on the two-meter band, which had kicked around the advantages of valves instead of transistors until midnight. He'd spent an hour working out the details of a mobile competition that his local radio club proposed organizing for some time in the next month. Then, at 0115 GMT, he was ready for the real stuff. George put on the headphones and turned up the RF knob on his receiver. It was a big Edistone 940, and since he'd invested in his new aerial tuner, it had been pulling in calls from all round the world. There was a CQ call from a man in Seattle, and George switched the receiver to standby and tuned in the transmitter. He'd glanced up at the big electric clock on the wall. It was 0121 GMT precisely. As he turned the receiver tuner a few cycles, the needle came up and he pressed the microphone speak button. George Sharp saw only the first vivid, white, pulsing flash. The U.S. Army Air Force pilot had been given explicit instructions that the demonstration flying would not include handing over the controls to the RAF wing commander under any circumstances. It was a demonstration flight, not an instruction flight, and as the man from General Dynamics had said, Major, this little bundle is meant to impress these boys, but it ain't for sale, so there'll be no touching and no explaining. It's just a ride. The plane was a modified General Dynamics FE-111E. At 40,000 feet, it clocked up an easy 1,650 miles per hour, two and a half times the speed of sound. And that was with full combat load. They had fired the full load of 3,000 rounds from the 20mm cannons over the North Sea, and then screamed over the English coast at King's Lynn, and swept in a wide circle across the East Midlands, and tore through the sky up to Yorkshire and County Durham. RAF Strike Command Air Control had heard a shout over the static, and then there was silence. The FE-111E crashed on the wild, heather-covered Cheviots, just south of Rothbury. The subsequent service examination indicated that there had been spontaneous fire over all the aircraft with no apparent start point. The remains were shipped to Texas for the U.S. Army Air Force to carry out its own investigations. Two national newspapers reported an IRA bomb attack on a generating substation on the night of the 24th of July, and that the Northumberland Constabulary were following several lines of inquiry. In the room at the University of Leningrad, Venturi was studying a 20 by 16 color enlargement. It was slightly damp, but it was crisp and sharp. It showed the back wall of the guard room at RAF Boomer. Only the top half was covered. The rest was plain hardboard. The top half contained two quarto pages with typed instructions for the duty guard, 
facsimile examples of various identity cards, a list of top-secret telephone numbers, and the triple-page spread of Playmate of the Month for January 1973. The identity cards included those for Special Branch, MI5, MI6, the FBI, and CIA, and the United States National Security Agency.